Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. As always, transcripts of the episode can be found in my Google Drive. The link for that is in the show notes. This is it! The final episode of The Horror of the Hills from Frank Belknap Long. This has been a year so far of long-form work, and in June, the Pride Month celebration is going to be long-form work as well. Quick note about that. There are only four Mondays in June, and there are five Tuesdays. As the story that's being performed by the readers comes in five parts, the show will be going out on Tuesdays. So when Monday, May 31st rolls around, you'll get that episode as usual, and then the very next day, you get the first episode of Pride Month and every Tuesday after that, then in July, back to Mondays. Not sure where I'm going to go after that. I'm kind of thinking about making this a long-form sort of year, and I have a few stories I would like to cover, but I know that sometimes having that one shot is nice as well, so I'll think about that. If you have any input on the decision, I'd love to hear it. Please feel free to email me, theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and let's get into it. Chapter 9. The Horror Moves We must overtake it before it reaches the crossroads! shouted Little. They were speeding by the sea, tearing at seventy miles an hour down a long white road that twisted and turned between ramparts of sand. On both sides there towered dunes, enormous, majestic, morning stars aglitter on the dark waters intermittently visible beyond their seaward walls. The horseshoe-shaped isthmus extended to six miles into the sea and then doubled back toward the Jersey coast. At the point where it changed its direction stood a crossroad, explicitly signposted with two pointing hands. One of these junctions led directly toward the mainland, the other into a dense, ocean-defiled waste, marshy and impregnable, a kind of morass where anything or anyone might hide indefinitely. And toward this retreat, Shawnier fled. For hours, Little's car had pursued it along the tarred and macadamized roads that fringed the Jersey coast, over bridges and viaducts and across wastes of sand, in a straight line from Asbury Park to Atlantic City, and then across country and back again to the coast, and now down a thin terrain lashed by Atlantic spray, deserted save for a few ramshackle huts of fishermen and a vast congregation of gulls. Shawnier Fawn had moved with unbelievable rapidity. From the instant when they had first encountered it, crouching somnolently in the shadows beneath a deserted bathhouse at Long Branch, and had turned the light on it and watched it awake, to the moment when it had gone shambling away through the darkness, its every movement had been ominous with menace. Twice it had stopped in the road and waited for them to approach, and once its great arm had raised itself against them in a gesture of malignant defiance, and on that occasion only the entropy machine had saved them. Its light Shawnier could not bear, and when Little had turned the ray upon the creature's flanks, the great obscene body had heaved and shuddered, and a ghastly screeching had issued from its bulbous lips. And then forward again it had forged, its thick, stumpy legs moving with the rapidity of pistons, carrying it over the ground so rapidly that the car could not keep pace. But always its tracks had remained visible, for a phosphorescence streamed from them, illuming its retreat and always its hoarse bellowing could be heard in the distance, freighted with a fury and a hatred incalculable. And by the stench, too, they trailed it, for all the air through which it passed was acridly defiled, pungent with an uncleanliness that evades description. 
It is infinitely old, cried Little as he maneuvered the car about the base of a sea-lashed dune, as old as the earth's crust, otherwise it would have crumbled. You saw how the bathhouse crumbled, how the shells beneath its feet dissolved and vanished. It is only its age that saves it. You have the light on it for five minutes, shouted Algernon. His voice was hoarse with excitement, and it still lives. What can we do? We must corner it, keep the light directed at it for many minutes. To send it back, we must decrease the random element in it by a billion years. It has remained substantially as it is now for at least that long, perhaps longer. How many years of Earth time does the machine lop off a minute? shouted Imbert. Can't tell exactly. It works differently with different objects. Metals, stone, wood, all have a different entropy rhythm. But roughly, it should reverse entropy throughout a billion years of Earth time in 10 or 15 minutes. There it is, shouted Algernon. It's reached the crossroads. Look. Against a windshield glazed with sea mist, Imbert laid his forehead, peering with bulging eyes at the form of Shanyer, phosphorescently illumined a quarter mile before them on the road, and even as he stared, the distance between the car and the loathsome horror diminished by fifty yards. "'It isn't moving!' cried Little. He had half risen from his seat and was gripping the wheel as though it were a living thing. "'It's waiting for us! Turn on the light, sir! Quick! For God's sake, we're almost on top of it!' Algernon fell upon his knees in the dark and groped about for the switch. The engine's roar increased as Little stepped furiously upon the accelerator. "'The light! Quick!' Little almost screamed the words. Algernon's fingers found the switch and thrust it sharply upward. There ensued the drone of revolving spheres. It's moving again! God, it's moving! Algernon rose shakingly to his feet. Where is it? He shouted. I don't see it! It's making for the marshes! Shouted Little. Look, straight ahead, through here! He pointed toward a clear spot in the windshield. Craning hysterically, Algernon descried a phosphorescent bulk making off over the narrowest of the bisecting roads. With a frantic spin of the wheel, Little turned the car about and sent the speedometer soaring. The road grew narrower and more uneven as they advanced along it, and the car careened perilously. "'Careful!' Algernon called out warningly. "'We'll get ditched. Better slow up!' "'No!' cautioned Little, his voice sharp with alarm. "'We can't stop now!' The light from the machine was streaming unimpeded into the darkness before them. "'Keep it trained on the road!' shouted Little. "'It would destroy a man in an instant!' They could smell the mudflats now. A pungent, salty odor of stagnant brine and putrescent shellfish drifted toward them, whipped by the wind. A sickly yellow light was spreading sluggishly in the eastern sky. Across the road ahead of them, a turtle shambled and vanished hideously in a flash. "'See that?' cried Little. "'That's how Shanyer would go if it wasn't as old as the earth.' "'Be ready with the brakes!' Algernon shouted back. The end of the road had swept into view. It ran swiftly downhill for fifty yards and terminated in a sandy waste that was half-submerged at its lower levels. The illumined bulk of Shanyer paused for an instant on a sandy hillock. Then it moved rapidly downward toward the flats, arms spread wide, body swaying strangely as though it were in awe of the sea. Little steered the car to the side of the road and threw on the brakes. "'Out, both of you!' he shouted. Algernon descended to the ground and stood for an instant, shakingly clinging to the door of the car. Then, in a sudden access of determination, he sprang back and began tugging at the machine, whilst Imbert strove valiantly to assist him. There came a bellow from the great form that was advancing into the marsh. Algernon drew close to Little and gripped him firmly by the arm. "'Hadn't we better wait here?' he asked, his voice tight with strain. "'It seems to fear the sea. 
We can entrench ourselves here and attack it with the light when it climbs back. No, Little's reply was emphatic. We haven't a second to waste. It may mire itself. It's too massive to flounder through the mud without becoming hopelessly bogged down. We'll drive it forward into the marsh. Resolutely, he stopped and beckoned to his companions to assist him in raising and supporting the machine. Dawn was spreading in the east as the three men staggered downward over the sandy waste, a planet's salvation in the glittering shape they carried. Straight into the morass they went, quaking with terror, but impelled by a determination that was oblivious to caution. From Shanyer there now came an insistent screeching and bellowing, a noise that smote so ominously on Algernon's ear that he wanted, desperately, to drop the machine and head back toward the car. But above the obscene bellowings of the horror rose Little's voice in courageous exhortation. "'Don't stop for an instant!' he cried. "'We must keep it from circling back to the road. It will turn in a moment. It's sinking deeper and deeper. It will have to turn!' Their shoes sank into the sea-soaked marsh weeds, while luridly across the glistening morass streamed the greenish light from the machine, effacing everything in its path save the mud itself, which bubbled and heaved, made younger in an instant by ten thousand years. And then suddenly, the great thing turned and faced them. Knee-deep in the soft mud it turned, its glowing flanks quivering with ire, its huge trunk malignly upraised, a flail of flame. For an instant it loomed thus, terribly menacing, the soul of all malignancy and horror, a cancerous cyclops oozing fetter. Then the light swept over it, and it recoiled with a convulsive trembling of its entire bulk. Though half-mired, it retreated swayingly, and its bellows turned to hoarse gurglings such as no animal throat had uttered in all of Earth's eons of sentient evolution. And then, slowly, it began to change. As the light streamed over and enveloped it, it began unmistakably to shrivel and darken. "'Keep the light steady!' Little cried out, his voice tremulous with concern, his features set in an expression of utter revulsion. Algernon and Imbert continued to advance with the machine, as sickened as Little was by what they saw, but supported now by the disappearance of all uncertainty as to the truth of Little's claims. And now... That which had taken to itself an earth form in eons primordial began awfully to disincarnate, and before their gaze was enacted a drama so revolting as to imperil reason. A burning horror withdrew from its garments of clay and retraced in patterns of unspeakable dimness the history of its enshrinement. Not instantly had it incarnated itself, but by stages slow and phantasmal and sickening. To ascend, Shanyer had had to feast, not on men at first, for there were no men when it lay venomously outspread on the earth's crust, but on entities no less malignant than itself, the spawn of starbirths incalculable. For before the earth cooled, she had drawn from the skies a noxious progeny. Drawn earthward by her holocaust they had come, and relentlessly Shanyer had devoured them. And now, as that which had occurred in the beginning was enacted anew, these blasphemies were disgorged, and above the dark rack defilement spread. And at last, from a beast shape to a jelly Shanyer passed, a jelly enveloped in darting filaments of corpse-pale flame. For an instant it moved above the black marsh as it had moved in the beginning when it had come from beyond the universe of stars to wax bestial in the presence of man. And then the flames vanished, 
and nothing remained but a cold wind blowing across the estuary from the open sea. Little let out a great cry, and Algernon released his hold on the machine and dropped to his knees on the wet earth. Imbert, too, relinquished the machine, but before doing so he shot back the lever at its base. Only for an instant did the victory go unchallenged, for before the spheres on the machine had ceased to revolve, before even the light had vanished from the gleaming waste, the malignancy that had been Shanyar Fawn reshaped itself in the sky above them. Indescribably it loomed through the gray sea mists, its bulk magnified a thousandfold, its long dangling trunk swaying slowly back and forth. For an instant it towered above them, glaring venomously. Then, like a racer, it stooped and floundered forward and went groping about with its monstrous hands for the little shapes it hated. It was still groping when it dimmed and vanished into the depth of the hazy, dawn-brightened sky. Chapter 10. Little's Explanation It was the fifth day since Shanyar Fawn had been sent back through time. Algernon and Little sat in the latter's laboratory and discussed the destruction of the horror over cups of black coffee. You think then that the last manifestation we saw was a kind of spectral emanation without physical substance? Not wholly, perhaps, replied Little. An odor of putrefaction came from it. I should regard the phenomenon as a kind of tenuous reassembling rather than an apparition in a strict sense. Shanyar had been incarnate for so long in the hideous shape with which we are familiar that its disembodied intelligence could reclothe itself in a kind of porous mimesis before it returned to its hyperdimensional sphere. So rapidly did our machine reverse entropy that perhaps tiny fragments of its terrestrial body survived, and these, by a tremendous exercise of will, it may have reassembled and figuratively blown up. That is to say, it may have taken these tiny fragments and so increased their porosity beyond the normal porosity of matter that they produced the cyclopean apparition we saw. All matter you know is tremendously porous, and if I could remove all the vacuums from your body, you would shrink to the size of a pinhead. Algernon nodded and was silent for a moment. Then he stood up, laid his coffee cup on the windowsill, and crossed to where Little was sitting. We agreed, he said, that we wouldn't discuss Shanyar further until, well, until we were in a little calmer frame of mind than we were a few days ago. It was a wise decision, I think, but I'm now so certain that what we both witnessed was not an illusion that I must insist you return an honest answer to two questions. I shall not expect a comprehensive and wholly satisfying explanation, for I'm aware that you are not completely sure yourself as to the exact nature of Shanyar, but you have at least formed an hypothesis and there are a good many things you haven't told me about which I've earned the right to know. What do you wish to know? Little's voice was constrained, reluctant. What destroyed the horror in the Pyrenees? Why were there no more massacres after, after that night? Little smiled wanly. Have you forgotten the pools of black slime which were found on the melting snow a thousand feet above the village three days after we sent Shanyar back? You mean... Little nodded. Shanyar's kin, undoubtedly. They accompanied Shanyar back, but left, like their master, a few remainders. Little round pools of putrescent slime, a superfluity of rottenness that somehow resisted the entropy-reversing action of the machine. You mean that the machine sent entropy-reversing emanations half across the world? Little shook his head. 
I mean simply that Sean Yerfan and its hideous brethren were joined together hyperdimensionally and that we destroyed them simultaneously. It is an axiom of virtually every speculative philosophy based on the newer physics and the concepts of non-Euclidean mathematics that we can't perceive the real relations of objects in the external world, that since our senses permit us to view them merely three-dimensionally, we can't perceive the hyperdimensional links which unite them. If we could see the same objects, men, trees, chairs, houses on a fourth-dimensional plane, for instance, we'd notice connections that are now wholly unsuspected by us. Your chair, to pick an example at random, may actually be joined to the window ledge behind you, or to the Woolworth building. Or you and I may be but infinitesimally tiny fragments of some gigantic monster occupying vast segments of space-time. You may be a mere excrescence on the monster's back, and I a hair of its head. I speak metaphorically, of course, since in higher dimensions of space-time there can be nothing but analogies to objects on the terrestrial globe. Or you and I and all men and everything in the world, every particle of matter, may be but a single fragment of this larger entity. If anything should happen to the entity, you and I would both suffer. But as the monster would be invisible to us, no one, no one equipped with normal human organs of awareness, would suspect that we were suffering because we were parts of it. To a three-dimensional observer, we should appear to be suffering from different causes, and our invisible hyperdimensional solidarity would remain wholly unsuspected. If two people were thus hyperdimensionally joined, like Siamese twins, and one of them were destroyed by a machine similar to the one we used against Shanyar Fawn, the other would suffer effacement at the same instant, though he were on the opposite side of the world. Algernon looked puzzled. But why should the link be invisible? Assuming that Shanyar Fawn and the Pyrenean horrors were hyperdimensionally joined together, either because they were parts of one great monster or merely because they were one in the hyperdimensional sphere, why should this hyperdimensional connecting link be invisible to us? Well, perhaps an analogy will make it clearer. If you were a two instead of a three-dimensional entity, and if, when you regarded objects around you, chairs, houses, animals, you saw only their length and breadth, you wouldn't be able to form any intelligible conception of their relations to other objects in the dimension you couldn't apprehend, the dimension of thickness. Only a portion of an ordinary three-dimensional object would be visible to you, and you could only make a mystical guess as to how it would look with another dimension added to it. In that, to you, unperceivable dimension of thickness, it might join itself to a thousand other objects, and you'd never suspect that such a connection existed. You might perceive hundreds of flat surfaces about you, all disconnected, and you would never imagine that they formed one object in the third dimension. You would live in a two-dimensional world, and when three-dimensional objects intruded into that world, you would be unaware of their true objective confirmation, or relatively unaware, for your perceptions would be perfectly valid so long as you remain two-dimensional. Our perceptions of three-dimensional world are only valid for that world, to a fourth-dimensional or fifth- or sixth-dimensional entity, our conceptions of objects external to us would seem utterly ludicrous. And we know that such entities exist. Shanyar Fawn was such an entity. And because of its hyperdimensional nature, it was joined to the horror on the hills in a way we weren't able to perceive. We can perceive connections when they have length, breadth, and thickness, but when a new dimension is added, they pass out of our ken, precisely as a solid object passes out of the ken of an observer in a dimension lower than ours. Have I clarified your perplexities? 
Algernon nodded. I think, yes, I'm sure that you have, but I should like to ask you another question. Do you believe that Shanyar Fawn is a transcendent world soul endowed with a supernatural incorporeality or just just a material entity? I mean, was Ullman's priest right and was Shanyar an incarnation of the oneness of the Brahmic mysteries, the portentous all-in-all of theosophists and occultists, or merely a product of physical evolution on a plane incomprehensible to us? Little took a long sip of coffee and very deliberately lowered his head as though he were marshalling his convictions for a debate. I believe I once told you, he said at last, that I didn't believe Shanyar Fawn could be destroyed by any agent less transcendental than that which we used against it. It certainly wasn't protoplasmic or mineral, and no mechanical device not based on relativist concepts could have affected the dissolution we witnessed. An infrared ray, for instance, or a cyclotron would have been powerless to send it back, Yet despite the transcendental nature of even its incarnate shell, despite the fact that even in its earth shape it was fashioned of a substance unknown on the earth, and that we can form no conception of its shape in the multidimensional sphere it now inhabits, it is my opinion that it is, inherently like ourselves, a circumscribed entity, the spawn of remote worlds and unholy dimensions, but a creature and not a creator, a creature obeying inexorable laws and occupying a definite niche in the cosmos. In a way we can never understand, it had acquired the ability to roam and could incarnate itself in dimensions lower than its own. But I do not believe it possessed the attributes of deity. It was neither beneficent nor evil, but simply amorally virulent. A vampire-like life form from beyond the universe of stars strayed by chance into our little walled-in three-dimensional world. One unguarded gate, may be standing ajar. But do you believe that it actually made a race of men to serve it? That the Miri Negri were fashioned from the flesh of primitive amphibians? Little frowned. I don't know. Conditions on the cooling earth two billion years ago may once have been such that creations of that nature antedated the process of biological evolution with which we are familiar and we may be sure that Shanyar Fawn, with its inscrutable endowments, could have fashioned men-shapes had it so desired, could have fashioned them even from the plankton-like swarms of small organisms which must have drifted with the tides through the ancient oceans. Little lowered his voice and looked steadily at Algernon. Someday, he murmured, Shanyar may return. We sent it back through time, but in five thousand or a hundred thousand years it may return to ravage. Its return will be presaged in dreams, for when its brethren stirred restlessly on the Spanish hills, both I and Siaho were disturbed in our sleep by harbingers from beyond. Telepathically, Shanyar spoke to sleeping minds, and if it returns, it will speak again, for man is not isolated among the sentient beings of earth, but is linked to all that moves in hyperdimensional continuity. <laughs> and that was the finale of the horror from the hills by frank belknap long thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed it four more weeks in may because there's five mondays in may and then pride month starts i'm really excited about that and the readings all sound amazing you are going to love it if you want to help support the show and contribute to the upkeep such as hosting fees paying the pride month readers and even getting early access to the show please feel free to support me on patreon patreon.com slash the weird tales podcast uh, Mark Vincent, thank you so much. Eric Braun, thank you. 
Chris Cowley, thank you. Hermagoras, thank you. Pontius Fredrickson, thank you. That'll just about wrap it up for this episode. Just going to let you all know that at the end of May, the Stephen King story, The Man Who Would Not Shake Hands, comes down off the page and out of the feed due to contractual obligation, so listen to it now while you can. Thank you so much, and I will see you next week. Da-da-da-da-da-da, here's the bloops! Sean Yerfan had moved with unbelievable rapidity from the instant when they had first encountered it, crouching somnolently in the shadows beneath a deserted bathhouse at Long Branch, and had turned the light on it and watched it awake to the moment when it had gone shambling away through the darkness, its every movement. (sighs) (coughs) Sean Yerfan had moved with unbelievable rapidity, from the instant when they had first encountered it, crouching somnolently in the shadows beneath a deserted bathhouse at Long Branch, and had turned the light on it and watched it awake. <sighs> this is the most poorly written sentence I've ever had to read on this show, and that's saying a lot. Sean Yerfan had moved with unbelievable rapidity from the instant when they had first encountered it, crouching somnolently in the shadows beneath a deserted bathhouse at Long Branch and had turned the light on it and watched it awake, to the moment when it had gone shambling away through the darkness, its every movement had been ominous with menace. Oh my God, I still didn't get it right. <sighs> Sean Yerfan, this is all one sentence. It's all one sentence. Sean Yerfan had moved with unbelievable rapidity from the instant when they had first encountered it, crouching somnolently in the shadows beneath a deserted bathhouse at Long Branch. I had it, dude! I had it! Fucking... God damn it. I finally get the sentence right, and my fucking cat... All right. Take what? What is this now? Take six. Sean Yerfan had moved with unbelievable rapidity from the instant when they had first encountered it, crouching somnolently in the shadows beneath a deserted bathhouse at Long Branch, and had turned the light on it and watched it awake to the moment when it had gone shambling away through the darkness. Its every movement had been ominous with menace. These blasphemies were disgorged, and above the dark rack. And above the dark, I have no idea how this bit is supposed to be read. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go for it and don't call me out if I get it wrong. And above the dark rack, defilement spread. All matter, you know, is tremendously porous. And if I could remove all the vacuums from your body, you would shrink to the size of a pinhead. I don't think that's scientifically accurate, Mr. Little. Well, perhaps an analogy will make it clearer. No, no little. It won't. I don't know what you're talking about. An infrared ray, for instance, or a cyclotron would have been powerless to send it back. Like Theodore's marvelous cyclotron? That's a reference that nobody's going to get until the Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities comes out. <sighs>